Hello. How's everyone doing? Good. I'm so glad to hear that. It's great to see everybody, whether you're here in person, obviously, or you're watching at Classic, or you're watching at Moon, or online. Uh, we're just glad that you're here joining us. And uh, my name is Pastor Ben. I'm one of the pastors here at Pathway. And uh, it is my pleasure to be able to deliver God's Word to you today. Uh, so if you are new to Pathway, or maybe it's just been a little while since you've tuned in or since you've been here, we've been in a series called Strength and Weakness. Now, if you're really up to date, you know we're in part two of Strength and Weakness. We took a little break there for, for a minute, uh, but we are back to Strength and Weakness going through the book of 2 Corinthians. So we're actually going to finish the book this week and next week. We're finishing out chapter 12 and 13 of 2 Corinthians. And what we're going to talk about today is, it's going to be kind of a funny term, um, but we're going to talk about the, the paradox of power. Okay, the paradox of power. And we all know that uh, defining terms is important. I can use a word and mean it in one way, and you can hear the word and receive it in another way. And so it's important for us to know, when we talk about a paradox of power, what are we actually talking about. So when I use the word paradox today, what I mean by the word paradox is this definition. A statement or proposition that seems self-contradictory or absurd, but in reality expresses a possible truth. So again, paradox of power. If you were here last week or you tuned in last week, you heard that at the end of 2 Corinthians chapter 12, at the end of verse 10, Paul says, for when I am weak, then I am strong. Paradox, right? That's just, it's, it, it's right there. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Like, it seems self-contradictory. It doesn't quite make a whole lot of sense. But in the paradox of power, it does make sense. When I am weak, then I am strong. And so it's a different way of understanding power. It's, it's a different kind of paradigm when we talk about power in regards to how God defines it, how scripture talks about power. So we're going to talk about this paradox of power to understand it a little bit differently. It's countercultural and uh, it's a, a paradox when weakness is actually strength. What we're going to see from Paul today is that he has the, this deep love for the Corinthians. Again, if you've followed along on this journey, you've seen that, that things have not been easy in the relationship between Paul and the church at Corinth. We've seen that there have been some, some challenges, some struggles. They, they kind of butted heads a little bit where Paul has had to, to write some, some severe things and he's had to go to them and, and not be kind and meek and gentle as he's been with them. He's had to kind of bring with him some apostolic authority, some, some coming in and, and just kind of calling them out. And we're going to see, though, that what happens, it, it comes from a place of love from Paul. He has this deep love for them. He, he's implored them to follow Christ. He's encouraged them in their faith. He, he's shared his heart and his life with them. He has sent uh, some of his, his best friends and, and best uh, people in ministry, he has sent them to Corinth to minister to the church there. Paul has, has poured out his heart for the Corinthians. And yet, we're going to see that, that the Corinthians did not return the favor. It was not, hey, you've loved us, so we're going to love you. Instead, what they do is they believe the false teachers that are making up lies about Paul. They're making up these things about Paul that, that basically are accusing him of, of trickery and deceit. And yet Paul continues to love them. He perseveres in his love for them. 
they should have been the ones defending Paul to these false teachers. They should have been the ones commending Paul to these false teachers, and yet they didn't. They were persuaded by the power structure of these false teachers who sounded really good. They spoke very well. They had nice-sounding things to say, and it, the Corinthians started to give in and, and fall into what they were saying, and yet Paul persevered. And so what we have is our first paradox there is the paradox of love. We're going to see, again, Paul's love for the Corinthians in a way that, that it doesn't quite make sense that he continues to persevere in his love for them. So the paradox of love, and this paradox reveals that love is given even when love isn't received. Okay, love is given even when love isn't received. It seems contradictory, like, you love me, I'll love you, right? We sometimes get more uh, transactional in our relationships where, like, what you give to me is what I'll give to you. So if, if you talk bad about me, well, you know what I'm gonna do about you, right? It's like, but if you love me, then I'll, I'll show you love. But, but what Paul does here is he, he doesn't just give them what they've given to him. He continues to go, give love in, in a way that just doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. So there's this paradox here, where he's giving something that he's not receiving. So love is given even when it isn't received. And, and this paradox of love is really our entire way of understanding what it means to be a follower of Jesus, is we're called to this paradox of love. We're called to, to give love even when it's not received. This is the kind of love that it takes to love our neighbor as ourselves. Our neighbor who may believe differently than us, who may look differently than us, who may not get along with us, who maybe there's, there's reasons why we don't like each other, but we're still called to love our neighbor as ourselves. It, it can lead us into a place of, of like, man, they don't really love me well, so like I'm not going to love them well, right? Like, you blare your music at 2 a.m., I'm going to blare my music, whatever. You know, it's like whatever the, the tiff is, uh, you cut down a tree in, in my yard, like, you know, whatever those things get into, we're supposed to love our neighbor as ourselves, it, but it's, it's not always something that we have received. So again, Paul loves even when it's not received. We see this in our own lives, in the way that God has loved us. John 3, 16, one of the most famous Bible verses that most of us ha have probably memorized. John three sixteen says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. So he did what? He, out of his love, he, he gave his only son. Why? So that anyone who believes in him might not perish, but have everlasting or eternal life. And so out of God's love for us, he sent his son Jesus Christ to die on a cross for our sins. Knowing that we were not often or easily or as a habit going to return that love all the time. That's the depth of love that God has for us. Knowing that we were not going to love him back knowing that there was a chance that we, we may never actually return the love that God has for us, he still sent his son because of his love. It, it's a paradox. It doesn't make any sense. It seems contradictory to the way that, that the world works in more of a transactional type of way, but what God does is, is he loves, knowing that it may not be returned. We see this in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 11 through 18. Uh, you can turn there with us, or you can get, get there on your, your Bible app or through the Pathway Notes, uh, you, you know, in your Pathway app. You can also access it through that. But we're going to be in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and 13 today. So 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 11 through 18, and, and here's what Paul writes. He says, I've made a fool of myself, but you drove me to it. I ought to have been commended by you, for I'm not in the least inferior to the super apostles, even though I am nothing. 
I persevered in demonstrating among you the marks of a true apostle, including signs and wonders and miracles. How were you inferior to the other churches? Except that I was never a burden to you. Forgive me this wrong. He kind of gets a little sarcastic with him. He's like, hey, how, how are you different than any of the other churches? I didn't ask for, for money from you. I didn't ask for you to support me financially. Like, my bad. I'm sorry. Like, okay. Right? He gets like a little bit, like you can like feel the sarcasm here. And this isn't the only place that it happens. It happens here in a minute too. But he says, like, my bad. Okay, I was never a burden to you. Sorry. Now I'm ready to visit you for the third time. And I will not be a burden to you. So he's saying, again, I'm not going to come and, and ask you to financially support me. Like, other churches ha- have supported generously, and so I'm not going to ask that of you. Now I'm ready to visit you for the third time, and I will not be a burden to you, because what I want is not your possessions. I don't want your money, but I want you. After all, children should not have to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. So I will very gladly spend it for you everything I have and expend myself as well. If I love you more, will you love me less? Be that as it may, I have not been a burden to you. And here's where he gets a little sarcastic again, because he's talking about this accusation that's been leveled at him. And he says, oh, yet crafty fellow that I am, I caught you by trickery. Did I exploit you through any of the men I sent to you? I urged Titus to go to you, and I sent our brother with him. Titus did not exploit you, did he? Did we not walk in the same footsteps by the same spirit? So you can hear there, there's some, some tension in this relationship right now. Through patience and perseverance and love, Paul has continued to pour out himself to the Corinthians. He says at the beginning, in, in verse 11, he says that he, he has made a fool of himself and he's been driven to it by the Corinthians. And, and the thing that he's talking about being a, a fool in is having to boast, is having to commend himself, to defend himself against what these super apostles have been saying. And he says, hey, listen, like, these guys talk a good game, they look good, they sound good, but have they proved it? Has their ministry actually proved anything? And so Paul, he, he says, like, listen, I, I'm done with boasting, I'm done with all this. Instead, like, just look at the actions of the ministry that I have done in Corinth. Look at what has happened in the midst of you. And it's been these signs, these wonders, these miracles. There, there's been action happening that is not something that Paul has done, but something that God has worked in Paul and through Paul to minister to the church in Corinth. He claims, again, not that it's something that he has done, but these works have been done in the midst of this church. So he doesn't put the focus on himself. Instead, he calls himself nothing. Nothing. One commentator says this about this passage. He says, once there was a great Scottish preacher, Dr. Thomas Chalmers, was congratulated on a, on a great speech to a crowded assembly. Yes, he said, but what did it do? Effectiveness is the proof of reality. The reality of a church is not seen in the splendor of its buildings, or the elaborateness of its worship, or the wealth of its giving, or even the size of its congregations. It is seen in changed lives. And if there are no changed lives, the essential element of reality is missing. The one standard by which Paul would have his apostleship judged was its ability to bring the life-changing grace of Jesus Christ to men and women. That's what he was pointing to. He's saying, listen, you want to talk? Like, sure, maybe I can't speak as well as them. Maybe I don't look as good as them. Maybe I don't sound as good as them. Whatever that may be. Maybe I'm not cool as them. I don't have as great a following as them. But one thing they do not have is the Holy Spirit of God working in and through them, these signs, wonders, and miracles. You want to talk about who's the real apostle in this situation? Look at the actions that have come from it. 
We think of James, where faith without works is dead. Where James 1.22 says, But be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Words are nice, but if they're not backed up by actions, right? We can come here and, and we can hear from the word of God, but if we don't leave changed, something's missing. Sometimes we, we can come into this space and, and we get so distracted. I think the enemy loves for things to happen on like the day that you're coming to church or the day that you're getting ready to tune in, whatever it might be, where you come in distracted, come in with, with worries and anxieties and stressors, and, and those are the things on your mind instead of listening to, okay, what does the Word of God have for me today? What can I learn from the Word of God to, to humble ourselves in weakness before the Word of God and submit ourselves to it and say, okay, God, here's your Word. What does it say? What do I need to change? The Greek word for, for sin is called hamartia, and it was actually a word that was used in, in archery, and it meant to miss the mark because somebody missed the target. They missed the bullseye. You missed what you're aiming at. And so our question is, hey, what, what mark are we missing? Like, or where are we missing the mark? We know what the mark is. Christ-like holiness. So, so where are we missing the mark? And so Paul is getting to that point here with the Corinthians. Their problem is that they were drawn in by people who, who were impressive. They had great resume. They had great personality. They sounded really good. But they weren't godly. They weren't people who faithfully and humbly followed God. And so Paul points to, hey, listen, this is, this is what is, is proof of a godly apostle working in your midst. Again, they could sound good, look good, appeal to our emotions and our desires. They can appeal to things that, that we want or hope to be true. And that's a little bit of the world that we live in today, is, is there are things that, that we, can, we can want to be true, right? Relationally, we can, we can want certain things to be true, to be things that, that Scripture backs up, things that, that Scripture condones. And yet, that's not how it works. When we approach Scripture, it's not what do I want to be true, but what does Scripture speak to as truth? If we don't look to the Word of God as that absolute truth, then we're going to be like the person who's kind of driven to and fro by every wind and wave of, of doctrine and thought. We need to stand firm on the Word of God and know that, that this is what defines what is true. Not my feelings, not my thoughts, not, not my opinion, not my preference, but the Word of God. And again, that's a paradox because it's not the way of the world that we live in, where truth is often more relative than it is absolute, and it's ever-changing. Yet the Word of God does not change. God does not change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So the paradox of love. Love is given even when love isn't received. As we faithfully follow God, it does call us to this life of paradox. Paul's going to liken it to the, the relationship between a parent and a child. It's something that I've seen in my own life uh, as, as I, like, again, we're talking about this paradox of power, right? And, and so when, when you have a, a child who, who is maybe not obeying, like, I know for me, that's something that's just like, like, come on. It's, it's like that thing that, that gets me, right? The, the immediate disobedience. I'm like, That's what I should do, is take that deep breath, right? But most often, a word, like something comes out before I've like caught it, and it's like, 
you did what? Or like, you know, whatever it is. Like, we, we tend to respond quickly. And, and it, in that, that power struggle between it, me and my, my oldest daughter, for sure, it, it, it like starts to escalate and escalate and escalate because like I want the power to, to be able to say like, well, I'm your dad, so I said so. Like, just do it, right? But like, she wants to like understand and, and hear it and like, but I also have to like do it in a gentle way. So I, I've seen like this paradox of power in my own life in, in parenting of like, okay, if I get louder and more demanding, that backfires. It does not work out well. And, and so I've seen like, okay, just like calm down. Speak softly. Speak quietly calmly, and she still disobeyed, but things have gone better, right? We are now not in a yelling match or like a little bit of a fight, you know? Like, I'm just saying, like, parenting is hard, but that's what Paul gets at here in this this understanding of like, he's kind of their spiritual father, and so he's coming to them in in this kind of weakness and humility and saying like, listen, I I don't want to get into this with you, but I've had to because you have not done what you should be doing. And so he comes into it and he says, listen, I don't, I don't want your money. What I want is, is your heart. Like, I care about your soul. What I am doing here is, is for your strengthening. Not because I'm upset. Not because, like, I, I am, like, being demanding or overbearing, but, but because I, I know what it is to follow Jesus, and I know that it's so much better than anything else. So he tries to bring them to that place. They didn't really received that well, right? Paul says, hey, the more I loved you, it seems like the less that you loved me. So what's going on here? It's this paradox of love. He continues to give love even when it's not received. And again, one, one commentator said this. He said, love him as a true friend who seeks your good more than your goodwill. The Corinthians were, were more in love with those who were speaking kind things to them, who were speaking in a way that they, they liked it better, not the hard truth, not the one who, who was confronting them. And yet, what God has called us to as a community, as a body of Christ, as a church, a community of believers, God has called us to confront one another. God has called us to see sin in someone else's life and reference it, talk about it, call them out on it in a loving, grace-filled, gracious way, but also with firmness, with conviction, being able to, to look at somebody and, and say something about like, hey, listen, like the way that you were speaking or how you were speaking about that person or whatever it is or, or the, man, the way that you hung to that person that was doing whatever it was on the road or, you know, whatever it is, like to, to say like, listen, like, is that in pursuit of Christ-like holiness or is that not? And we're going to get into our, our next paradox here in a second, um, where we're going to talk about the, this difference between the old way of life and the new way of life. But before we get there, we just have to point out, Paul had talked about this, uh, how he had kind of gotten sarcastic again with them, right? He said, yet crafty fellow that I am, I caught you by trickery. Because they were saying, hey, listen, yeah, you didn't ask us for money, but what you did is you had this collection taken for all these other churches and ministries, and you had Titus and this other brother come and collect that money, and we know you skimmed off the top, for sure, right? Like, you, you used some of that. Like, you just didn't tell anybody. You just kind of, like, took some and put it in your pocket, right? And you, like, walked away. Like, that's why you're well taken care of, Paul, because you've been skimming off the top. And Paul's like, listen, guys, you know who I am. You know my character, you know my integrity, you know who Titus is, you know who this other brother is, and did they exploit you? And he says, we, we walked in the same footsteps in the spirit as Titus and this other brother. He's saying, like, listen, Titus didn't exploit you, I didn't exploit you. Stop listening to these false teachers. 
Again, it's a paradox of love where he's been accused, he's endured hardship, he's been wronged, and yet he still continues to love. Love is given when love isn't received. Paradox number two is the paradox of new life. The paradox of new life. And this paradox looks at the old life seeks to return us to what new life in Christ has freed us from. One more time. The old life seeks to return us to what new life in Christ has freed us from. One pastor, his name is Mike Erie, he, he calls this old creation versus new creation living. We see it in 2 Corinthians 5.17, which we have covered in this sermon series, where Paul writes that, that for everyone who is in Christ, they are a new creation. The old life is gone and the new life has come. And yet we see in this paradox that even though we like anybody who believes in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, is in that new life. You are a new creation. We see this, this draw, this pull back to an old way of living, an old way of thinking, an old way of understanding. And Paul says, no, like this, this is not how it's supposed to be. There is something greater. There is something better. And so he goes into this, and, and he's talking about, okay, this is what I'm afraid of. When I come to Corinth, this is what I'm afraid that I'm going to find. I'm afraid that I'm going to find you are living according to the old creation. I'm afraid that you are not living as a new creation. He says, so here is what I'm afraid that I'm going to find when I come to be with you in person. Here's what he says. Verses uh, 19 through chapter 13 and verse 2. Have you been thinking all along that we have been defending ourselves to you? We've been speaking in the sight of God as those in Christ. And everything we do, dear friends, is for your strengthening. For I'm afraid that when I come, I may not find you as I want you to be, and you may not find me as you want me to be. Here's what he's afraid that there will be, and what a list it is. I fear that there may be discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, slander, gossip, arrogance, and disorder. I'm afraid that when I come again, my God will humble me before you, and I will be grieved over many who have sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, sexual sin, and debauchery in which they have indulged. This will be my third visit to you. Every matter, he, he quotes Deuteronomy here, he says, every matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. I already gave you a warning when I was with you the second time. I now repeat it while absent. On my return, I will not spare those who sinned earlier or any of the others. So again, the paradox of new life is that the old life seeks to return us to what new life in Christ has freed us from. Paul has been attempting to strengthen them in their faith, to encourage them to follow Jesus Christ, to encourage them to be faithful to what they know to be true, to not live according to the old creation, but to live in the new creation because it's so much better. Like, he knows it. Paul has lived it. He used to be Saul. He used to persecute the way. He used to persecute those who followed Jesus, and then he saw the light, literally was blinded by it, and now he knows, like, listen, I know what you think you're doing is the best way. I know what you think you're doing is, is amazing and it's like what you desire, but listen, it's going to fall short. It's not going to lead you to the place that you think it's going to lead you. In fact, it's going to lead you to the very place that you don't want to go, but you think this is the road to get there, and it's not. And I'm afraid that when I come, I'm just going to be so grieved and humbled because what I'm going to find is you living in the old creation 
And it just is going to make him weep because he knows you're missing out on something so much more wonderful. Following Jesus. And so he basically is going to tell them, like, get this figured out. Repent of it. Turn from it. I don't want to find these things when I come. If they are there when I come, I'll do something about them. But I don't want to find them when I get there. Right, that's what he says in, in chapter 13, and when we just read that. He talked about every matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. I already gave you a warning when I was with you the second time. I now repeat it while absent. On my return, I will not spare those who sinned earlier or any of the others. I'm not going to let this go because it's so important. Because it, it, it's a matter of life and death. It's a matter of, of old way of living or new way of living. And one is far, far, far better. So again, these things that he's afraid he's going to find are discord, this rivalry or competition, jealousy or envy, fits of rage, these sudden explosions of passionate anger, selfish ambition, thinking, what can I get out of this for myself? Slander and gossip. I love what, what this commentator writes. He says, giving public verbal abuse to some person whose views are different. Ah, like, whew, definitely don't have that today, right? Whispering campaign of malicious gossip. The slanderous story murmured in someone's ear. Arrogance when others see our good deeds, knowing that, like, we want the glory, but that's not how it should be. Others should, should see the way we live and give glory to our Father in heaven. And then disorder or division, literally anarchy. So thankfully, none of those things exist today, but I'm just kidding, right? Like, it's, it's almost like Paul's writing to, like, the church today. He's like, oh, I know what's going to happen in the 21st century. So here, I'm just going to write this because it's going to, like, if somebody tells you the Bible's not relevant, tell them to read it. Like, it's so relevant. Like, here we go, right? He just jumps into it. He's like, mm, all right, so we got some stuff that we got to do because we're missing the mark. But he doesn't do this as an accusation of, like, you guys are the worst. Like, stop doing that. He's like, I love you, and there's something better for you. So let me just say this in, in a loving way. And so we need to be able to confront each other. We need to be able to, to get with somebody and say, hey, listen, I've heard this, or I've seen this, or, or I've, I've like witnessed this in your life, and like I'm not perfect at all, in, in the least. But out of my love for you, I need to say something. And boy, wouldn't it be amazing if that person received it in weakness, in humility, because they understood, hey, you love me and you want what's best for me. You love me and you know that it, it's, there's a better way. And we're able to, to look each other in the eye and call each other on our sin. Like, that's what the community of believers is supposed to do and supposed to be. And I get that it, that it was easier in this first century context because they lived in closer proximity. They had greater communal understanding of society and culture and all that. But this is what the, the body of Christ is called to do with one another, is in our love for one another, be willing to confront one another and be willing to receive that confronting. Confronting doesn't always have to be confrontational. It can be deeply loving. It can be meant for our strengthening. So, out of his love, he 
talked about, what he was afraid of finding there, so that they could repent of it and, and turn from it. Because he knows, he, he knew what it was that the old life was, was continually trying to draw you back to what Christ has redeemed you and freed you from. The same thing happens in our own lives. We are continually drawn back, and that's why we have to continually be repenting, continually be submitting ourselves to the authority of God's word, continue to, to sit at the feet of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and just be in his presence. We need to continually be doing that. There, there's nothing more important in our lives than that. Brings us to paradox number three, the paradox of power, the paradox of power. Again, that power flows best from God through our weakness. Power flows best from God through our weakness. Again, looking back at, at verse 10 in chapter 12, for when I am weak, then I am strong. It, it's this paradox. It doesn't make sense. How can you be strong when you are weak? What looks weak to the world is actually strength in, in the eyes of the Lord. And it appears that, that, that Paul and the Corinthians had different understandings, different ways of, of looking at power. For the Corinthians, it was this display uh, in, a, in a mighty personality and kind of a, an aggressive way of life. And for the Apostle Paul, it's seen in his weakness and in his humility. Verses 3 and 4 of 2 Corinthians 13, Paul writes this. He says, Since you are demanding proof that Christ is speaking through me, he is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. For to be sure, he was crucified in weakness, yet he lives by God's power. Likewise, we are weak in him, yet by God's power, we will live with him in our dealing with you. Again, Jesus was crucified in weakness, and, and what he means by this is that he was in weakness or submission to God's plan. What it looked like on the outside is that Rome had won, that the Jews had won. They had crucified Jesus. He was dead on the cross, and it, it looks like, okay, well, this whole weakness thing like really didn't work out. We see which power structure works. Rome did it. The Jews did it. The Pharisees won. Like, here we go. All right, so power is in, in, in military might. It's in physical aggression. That's what's going to win the day. And yet, in what power was Jesus raised from the dead three days later? It's in the power of God that he's been resurrected from the dead. Flipping the paradox of power, like flipping that power. Power is found in weakness. Not in this, this aggressive, like, like impressive, whatever resume and look and, and sound and, and all that, it's found in, in submission to the will and the plan of God. When Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane and he, he was praying to his heavenly Father and said, hey, if there's any other way, let, let's do that, right? If, if there is another way, if I don't have to be crucified, but Lord, not my will, but yours be done. And yet that's not often how we live our daily life. When we think about our every day, we more often think about, okay, what do I have to do today? All right, I have to like do all these different things, go to the, all these different places, you know, work and family and school and like whatever it might be, like, like our task list is full, our calendars are full, and we have all these things to do. And we get so busy and so overwhelmed that we don't leave time for it to be his will. She's like, well, we don't have time for that. Like, gotta, gotta go. 
But what if we were to, to pray every day, Lord, not my will today be done, but yours. Be done in my life, be done through my life, be done in my family's life and through my family's life. What if we just pause and pray, not my will, but yours be done. We take the position of weakness. We take the position of submission. And that is the person that is powerful. That is the person that has the strength, not of their own, but strength that comes from God, flows into them and then out of them as God works in and through that person. It's a different way of looking at power. It's a different way of, of looking at the world. Again, the Corinthians were unimpressed by Paul, and yet his way of living exemplified what Christ had done, how Christ had lived. And this is another way that we're able to, to speak in loving confrontation to those around us, like the people we need to confront in sin and, and we need to receive is, is in this weakness, in this humility, in this love for one another. We're able to, to receive somebody calling us in our sin and we're able to give that confronting to someone else out of our love to, to strengthen them, to encourage them, to, to push them towards Christ-like holiness. So as we kind of wrap things up today, what does all this mean? Paul calls the Corinthians to, to a place of repentance. He says, listen, when I come, I, I do not want to find these things among you. I do not want to hear about them. I do not want to see them. He's not saying like, hey, let's just sweep it under the rug. Let's pretend like it's not here. He, he's, he's wanting genuine, consistent, faithful followers of Jesus Christ. And so he calls me and says, hey, listen, like, repent, turn from this. There is a better way. Don't live according to the old way. Live according to the, as a new creation in Christ. So as we approach this scripture and, and we see what, what Paul is writing to the brothers and sisters in Corinth, we're faced with our own challenges. We're faced with, with thinking, what would Paul find if he came here? What kind of mood, what kind of attitude, what kind of relationships would he find here? Would he find that, that we love, we give love, even when it's not received? Would he find that, that we're living as new creations? That yes, the, the old creation is drawing us back, but we're saying yes to the new creation. We're living alive in Christ instead of dead in our sin. Would he find that we are humble before the Lord, submitting ourselves to his paradoxical way of, of living in love and grace and humility following the example of Christ? Would he find us doing that? And I know, that's a, I know that's a high calling. And yet, this is what it means to follow Jesus. It's all-encompassing. We love the Lord our God with not just a piece of ourselves, but with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's all-encompassing. There, there's nothing left out of that. And so if we're going to pursue him, he, he desires all of us, not just like a little bit, not just like the weekend's. So my question for you as we leave is to, what do you need to do with what you've heard in the word today? Right, we want to follow James 1.22. We don't want to just be hearers of the word. Because what James says is, if you are just a hearer of the word, you're deceiving yourself into thinking that you're actually faithfully following God. You're actually living according to the word because you've heard it. But if you've not done it, what's the effect? Right, it's not a changed life. You've just heard it. It's not done anything. So we want to be doers of the word, not hearers only. 
So you can come and, and you can sit or you can watch online or whatever it is, but don't just hear the word. What do you need to do with it? What do you need to go and do? Maybe it's a relationship that you need to repair. Maybe it's somebody you need to apologize to. Maybe it's something you need to, to like just, just carve out more time for you know, spending time in the word or whatever it might be. Like, what do you need to go and do? Maybe you just need to sit quietly before the Lord and, and repent of some things. Maybe you need to just even come up here after we're done and pray. Kneel down on the altar. Maybe you need to come find me after and, and pray. That's great. Let's do it. <laughs> Whatever you need to do, do something with what you've heard from the word today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this example from the church in Corinth. We thank you for Paul and his wisdom and, and how you used him as an apostle to, to bring the truth, to proclaim it. God, I pray that we would hear your word and that we would do something with what you have said. God, that we would live with the word of God as the foundation of our lives. That we would look to power and love and this new life that you give to us in a different way. That we would love even when it's not returned. That we would live as new creations. And Lord, that we would submit ourselves to you. We can only do it through your power and your strength. We pray all this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. What a great promise in verse 4 that we can live with him by the power of God. That power is available to us through Jesus. And we can trust in that power to sustain us in our times of weakness. I hope you're encouraged by that word today. Have a great week and we'll see you next Sunday.